Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of everyone else at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Joke Maniac. And I'm another host, Andrew, aka DM Andrew. Yes. And we are going to be talking about low fantasy gaming, and we have an amazing discussion that nope i lost my train of thought because i was too excited about the content it's a mind-blowing discussion from a real live anthropologist who has all sorts of ideas on low fantasy and what it means yes we, he will definitely have been the smartest person in the room that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah times 10 <laughs> but before that we have a couple of itunes reviews to read our first review comes from admiral sheridan and is titled a solid resource for any system the task of balancing the goals of entertaining, challenging, and interacting my players is daunting as a brand new GM. I'm currently running Star Trek Adventures, a 2D20 system from Modifius. It is a new game with very little official resources compared to D&D systems. Trying to write and balance a campaign mission and a persistent universe in that environment seems to be impossible with my lack of experience. Thankfully, I stumbled upon one of the best GM podcasts I've ever heard. The time, locations, classes, and technology may be different from D&D, but your show provides fantastic ideas every time I listen. Persistent worlds? Technological timelines? Religion and deities? Equipment? It's all covered masterfully. Your wealth of knowledge can help GMs of any experience level improve and expand upon their game sessions. Keep up the good work from the crew of the Starfleet ship USS Valley Forge. Awesome. Thank you, Admiral Sheridan. For that wonderful review. So, next up is a five-star review from Justin Sinks, and it is entitled Great Info, Love It, Even Through Its Bad Parts. Oh. I'm excited, though, because it's a five-star review. And, first off, I love the info in this podcast. It is always fresh and thought-provoking, which you're going to get another episode full of that in a moment. Guests are awesome as well. I tune in every time, and that's where the problem starts. I scream at the top of my lungs every time I hear that same dang intro to the fresh meat segment. I hate hearing that same clip. It drives me insane to the point that I haven't watched the two towers in years. The other intros also get on my nerves, except the mental weights intro, which of course, Morgan Jenkins makes everything better. Oh yes. I find myself singing that one often. To be completely honest, I tried to listen to the podcast a long time ago and couldn't. Those early episodes are tough. The audio quality was just so bad I couldn't stand it. But I never unsubscribed. Just set it to delete podcasts after a week. I checked back maybe a year ago and to my relief, the sound is much better. High five. Wow, seems like I really don't like this podcast, doesn't it? Then why did I five star it? Sure, it has a few downsides, but like I said before, the info shared is great. Even though sometimes I have blood dripping from my ears and temporary hearing loss and a raspy throat from screaming. So thank you, Justin Sinks. We appreciate the download and the fact that you came back and found that we have improved ourselves. And hopefully we're helping improve you as a dungeon master. But with that, let's head to Justin Sinks' favorite part of the episode, the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. 
Why can't we have some meat? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. This one's for you, Justin. One more time. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. So today on The Meet, we're going to be talking about low fantasy gaming. And with us today is Calvin Johns, owner and lead designer of Anthropos Games. And you're here with us. I'm excited. Yeah, thank you. Indeed, indeed. It's a glorious sunny day. The, the, winter, the winter is gone here in Texas. Yes, and I'm in California, so I didn't even have winter. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so we're going to ask you a few interview questions like we do with all of our guests. And the first one is very open-ended, and I'm ready for anything you have for us. But could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, so um, I'm from Michigan. I started gaming um, in the 80s. It would have been, I think, maybe first and second edition Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I played with uh, my buddy Eric Frankhouse, who's now a big like Iron DM guy uh, up at Gen Con, and um, he runs uh, quite a few things, actually. I'm up in Madison and is really big in the industry, and so you know he and I have been buddies since then. But yeah, I was back in the 80s or 90s. I have a, an advanced graduate degree now in anthropology. Um, I'm sort of an academic then by day. Um, I studied folklore. I've studied comparative religion. Um, I've had to learn some old dead languages and read a lot of awesome histories and myths and things like that from around the world. Um, then most recently, I did anthropology, and my dissertation was on public forms of play, large-scale play, like alternate reality games, um, even things like murder mystery dinners or conspiracy theories and hoaxes, right? Like how you sort of get a bunch of people sort of participating in this distributed world that pretty much like overlaps our world, but is a little different. And a lot of people do a lot of work in, you know, why people disagree, why people live in such different worlds and fight all the time and can't understand each other. And uh, my research was more on how we can really be living in worlds and getting along just fine and then suddenly realize, oh, no, we're in completely different worlds, right? Like you're talking to someone, everything sounds normal. And then all of a sudden, like, well, you know, until the lizard people take over. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, and you had no idea you were talking to someone who believed the lizard people exist for, you know, months or something, some friend you have, right? So I was kind of interested in that and looked at playing gaming. I started Anthropos Games then in 2008. I'd been developing games my whole life and gaming, you know, like I said, for 20 years by then. And I received just a random email from someone. And through the course of this email, I realized then who it was. But it was someone from like a church camp in like 1993 or something. And I had taken my, my Mead notebook of my homemade game to camp. And I was retranscribing it into a new fancy Mead notebook. And I gave the old version to this, you know, this other kid at camp. And so then 15, 17 years later or something... Um, this kid had found me on the internet, written me and said, hey, man, have you published this game yet? I'm on level like 186, but we don't really know what else to do after this point. <laughs> and I was like, what, what in the world? Um, I said, no, I haven't published it. And so, you know, I just, we made a website. I got my, you know, the guys I was gaming with together. And we started, you know, just putting together really like all the stuff we've been doing for the last like 20 years or so. And yeah, that kind of got me here then. So after, after graduating the dissertation, um, I have like a research job full time. And uh, we've been doing Anthropos now since 2008 or nine, I think. That is amazing. All I heard was, we're definitely having you back on uh, for, because there are many topics that we can take out of that. Yeah, sorry. Maybe I moved into other directions. No, perfect. So the other question I have is, is there anything that you're currently working on you know, with Anthropos Games? Yeah. So we launched, uh, we had Fantasy, which is our second title to Universal Engine that came out in 2015. And we've just been working on supplements for that. We're actually, I mean, this is, you know, like the the Mia Couple here, we have like two digital products we need to put out to finish that Kickstarter. Um, and it's just been a real, um, it just some stuff popped up. It's all uh, basically written. But the way Fontagy works, it's a very emergent 
system of meaning. So like the DM doesn't really come with a fully prepared story. It's more like they come with problems and the way the players solve it is still open as part of the game. Um, so we promised these modules and now it's realizing that it's very difficult to write modules for games where the narrative <laughs> is supposed to emerge during play. So just kind of, you know, every little issue then it's like, well, here's 15 suggested ways you could do this. Well, here's the next scene. Well, here's 15. Okay, 20. Okay, now the thing's 55 pages. Um, so we have a little bit of, I guess, concept creep going on with those, but we're working on that. And those should be out, um, you know, any minute now, just as soon as like final edits and things like that are done. Um, big sort of maybe new projects people might not know about. This would be a good place just to mention some things here. Uh, would be we have um, our, our first game, Early Dark, which is a low fantasy game I imagine we'll be talking about a lot today. Um, it doesn't use miniatures. It's, you know, we kind of made it to be a standalone. We really wanted it to be like, you buy this one book, you can play the game. We're not going to try to pitch a bunch of supplements to people and sort of make them always feel like they have to keep up. Uh, but now we have a lot of people that want more things. And I've recently got back into uh, painting miniatures and building terrain and things like that. And I want to make that useful as part of the hobby. Um, so we're going to have our Early Dark Tactics, which is going to be a miniature sort of friendly version of Early Dark. And it's really going to, it'll play off of like the whole idea of Final Fantasy Tactics with like the grid combat. And we'll call it Early Dark Tactics. And it'll just have some, some alternative ways. I mean, imagine it'll be like a 50-page PDF. Um, we're doing all the testing out. How do we handle our range system? We have a very dynamic range system. Uh, which again might come up a little bit later on. And so how do you, you know, figure that into a miniature uh, sort of a miniature combat game? So that's sort of the big things coming up. All the Fontagy releases, we have a lot of decks and a lot of supplements for that that have been sort of trickling out and there'll be more to come. And then, excuse me, a big revamp of Early Dark. Well, not revamp, but our, our, our next big supplement that'll kind of drive it into a different sort of gameplay feel. The surprise question is, if you could have a feat from the player's handbook, which would you choose and why? Oh, shoot. Well, again, I mean, got him. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorites are gonna are gonna be. I think my favorite was always the rope handling. I mean, just from like ages and ages. But that's like those those are additions gone now. Yeah, I don't know. I, Still I mean, useful. Well, I, I just we always sort of imagined. Yeah, not just sort of like Wild West type things, but even the more like I guess like parlor trick type stuff or like the super knots or these like magically untying. You could tie a knot that could be magically untied, um, just by yanking on it correctly or something. Right, as a skill. Um, but yeah, shoot, I do not, own, I mean, I, I will confess, I do not own the 5th edition player's handbook, so your surprise hey. question was a gotcha in there. I'm, I'm, we, we do more story games and stuff over at Anthropos. <laughs> no, I like it. I, I, it's always that, questions like those always rack my brain of like, should I get something that's super practical <laughs> yeah. or not? Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, and the thing about, I mean, well, we could even talk about that. That would be, that would probably be um, a topic for uh, maybe another show that's not so much about genres is about mechanics but yeah i mean even having things yeah when you have things that are super useful and things that aren't you know there's lots of great conversations actually happening online now about game balance and stuff and i think that's a really good one right like if we're all here trying to balance fun you can have those kinds of feats and those kinds of skills and things like that so yeah because they're fun yeah they're fun to have awesome with that we're going to jump right into the topic of low fantasy games but Excellent. before we get too deep into it i want to kind of go around the table starting with you calvin and what is low fantasy gaming i know there's probably a lot of definitions but we'll just to give us a framework to go off of how would you describe low fantasy gaming yeah okay yeah there, there probably are a bunch and for me how i define it and this will this might you know put us this is probably something to debate i always say magic is hard to use it is not ubiquitous. There's, I think there should be people that do not believe it even exists. Um, for me, for something to be considered low fantasy, all of those magical elements need to be up for debate still. You can imagine entire cities that exist just like in like the natural world in a certain way, right? So magic will be hard to use. It can't be ubiquitous and everywhere. And I go humans, only humans. 
for my definitions of, of low fantasy. Only humans. Uh, we could argue then if something like Dark Crystal would fit or not. There are no humans in the Dark Crystal. You know, we could we could maybe tango with you know how that would work. I think someone really could consider that uh, low fantasy also. But my the basic definition: humans only humans. Magic must be hard, and it cannot be uh, ubiquitous. Andrew. Yeah, I would say for me, you know, low fantasy always translates to realism more than anything. And so it's kind of like in your high fantasy, you got the guys who have the 100 hit points and they just get, you know, shot by 60 arrows and still be walking. You know, low fantasy is where the hero takes an arrow to the, you know, to the stomach and they're down for the count. And I would say for magic in low fantasy is, I would say, present but not powerful and definitely not accessible by regular means. So low fantasy would be like, there might be magical items from like a long time ago from where magic was prevalent and real, but now it's kind of diminished. And and I, I would say fantasy races are okay for low fantasy, at least from my opinion, as long as they're not magical in nature, you know? So you have orcs or elves that maybe at one point they remembered magic existing, but now that's just kind of an ancestral thing and they've moved on. Yeah, I and for me it's definitely the realism and I I'm trying to think of a good way to describe this, but essentially taking, you know, in, let's say a point in history in our real world, changing something and kind of doing the mental exercise of what would that air quote really mean for the world and like how would it actually change it. And my ability to do that is probably pales in comparison to someone who has an anthropology degree, but the <laughs> just that idea of okay, this one tweak happened and now what does it mean? And let's play in that world that is now redefined by that change. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, because I went immediately for like very sort of setting focused and then Andrew did the more like actual, like the, the, the true question maybe then of genre, right? Where it's about feel, not necessarily like the materiality of what's in the setting. And then your answer was maybe even that more like even just narrative based, right? Like not so much features of settings, but how you get there or like even design focused. Yeah, I think we tackled it from different, avenues yeah and it's it's a hard to it's a hard to define thing because it means something different to just about everyone out there like there are people who could argue that you know oh yeah the game of thrones and all that is low fantasy and then you have other people like no no that's high fantasy and they'll go back and forth so it's you know that there's a lot of disagreements as to what it is it seems yeah yeah fight at your table (laughs) not on the internet And I was maybe anticipating it later, I mean, how it differs from high fantasy, right? And that's where I may have bring up, you know, brought up some of those things like what Andrew said, right? Like, what really does make it different? And there is that feeling of realism in the comparison, right? Like, yeah, if I get hit with an arrow, it's actually going to matter versus I'm now I'm at 72 instead of 80. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I think we could kind of jump into the idea of the differences. And I think the other the other approach would also be pros and cons of low fantasy versus high fantasy, if you will, you know, and just kind of giving a broad perspective of what we think are the differences. Cause my immediate debate on the side of game of Thrones would be like, there are way too many zombies and dragons. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's more about that. And that discussion, it's about the realism and the grittiness behind it, Mm -hmm. you know, which is significantly Uh more, you know, gritty than a Lord of the Rings novel. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I, I guess for me then, I would say it doesn't count as low fantasy because there's way too much, and this is, I guess, my main difference then also setting-wise, there's way too much infrastructure. Like the people act like modern people. 
And if you're acting and thinking and all your motives are modern, everyone has a very sort of corporate mentality in the show. It's very hero focused, not very sort of like everyday person focused in certain ways. All their everyday people turn out to be heroes. Um, and to me, that genre, if it's about heroes, if it's about special people doing things, or if it's, if there's a, basically it's just modern contemporary business politics in loincloths, to me that still wouldn't count then as low fantasy because of that very sophisticated sort of sense of power structures and things like that. See, I, th- I think I would disagree a little there, though, because I feel like the more modern, it's the more realistic it becomes, and therefore the more low it becomes in the fantasy terms. Because, like, okay, high yeah. fantasy, in my opinion, is a departure from the real. You know, so it's like we get as far away as we can to where things like those politics and that, you know, the, those human interactions might not be the same as they are here in this world. And so I think the closer we get to reality, the more low the fantasy is. Ah, yeah. I'm just over here envisioning envisioning a courtroom drama where everyone's in loincloths. <laughs> but, <go. laughs> but but even something then like you know something like Tolkien though I mean I think what made Tolkien who we might take as like the sort of the quintessence of of high fantasy I think what made that it might seem fantastical to us but at the time it wasn't right I mean every single thing about the Hobbits is just straight up what England was like when you know at the time and even when he was a kid, right? I mean, you had a country that was changing. There's obviously some romantic nostalgia in there. Um, Some of the things would have been anachronistic in the 1940s, but it would have been very much similar to what his life was like in the 1910s or the 1920s, right? And so even though to us that seems sort of fantastic, the contemporary reader would have felt that was very, very realistic. And I might liken it to something like Harry Potter. Uh, My mother, not going to say how old she is, mom, you're safe. (laughs) <laughs> but when she went to school, they had houses. They had points for Gryffindor, points for this. You know, my mother's British, sorry. So she went to school in England. They had houses. They had colors. They had uniforms. They had prefects. They had all of that stuff that seems so strange and fanciful about Hogwarts is just exactly what every school, every boarding school looked like in the 1950s in England. And so the author then was just, you know, to their British audience or to people of that age, it didn't seem so fanciful, I think, in a certain huh. way. Um, I mean, I take your point, Andrew. That would be, you know, we might differ on those definitions. But, yeah, I might point out like, some of the high fantasy that we consider so, it was very realistic and very contemporary. And then in my maze, modern. Like, it just felt very... Yeah, I've I've never looked at it that way. But I guess that make, that actually makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, good job. Blowing my mind. So, I think the other, I think the other big question is, what are the pros of low fantasy? Um, I mean, you've written an entire setting. And you're, you, I, this was the topic you wanted to come bring to the table. I mean, I have some ideas of, uh, myself, but I, I think, I mean, and we'll definitely go around the go around the table with it. But what are the big draws in your mind, Calvin, to bring people to low fantasy and give it a try? Yeah, I think one of our taglines was like "No elves, no cod pieces." It was like kind <laughs> of like how we would, you know, when Early Dark came out. Um, Early Dark was the only the third game on Kickstarter, right? I mean, it, we we put that on Kickstarter in like 2010 or something. Wow. And so, so we, and low fantasy wasn't, you know, we didn't have that, you know, the resurgence in low fantasy that we have now. Um, and so, yeah, we always said no elves, no cod pieces was, we're two pros, I guess, in that way. But really, I think the major pro for it, I mean, like any other genre, if you, if you want to say the genres are equal, um, the pro is that it was different, right? I mean, it is something different. It offers a different style of gameplay, um, like what Andrew mentioned. I mean, personally, if you wanted, I could give in like why I think, like my personal pros just like stylistically. Oh, Yeah. But I, I, I much prefer low fantasy to high fantasy. I won't play in a high fantasy game. I mean, if I can help it. Like, if I have friends and they want to do a one-off, I'm fine with it. But, like, if we're going to do a long campaign, I wouldn't feel interested joining a high fantasy 
campaign. So for me, the pros are innumerable. I mean, I like the idea <laughs> um, you know, of having that realism, right? Having that darkness, um, having that grit. It's not necessarily more like mature or something, but it tries to take things a little more seriously, I guess. I would say one of the big pros of, of Low Fantasy Land 2 is that idea of danger, which is really great that Andrew uh, brought up also. You can set, I mean, the, the tone isn't sort of reinforced for you. Um, I like low fantasy because I think it is so different from everyday life. In a high fantasy game, you could have a waistcoat. In a high fantasy game, if you make you know a certain kind of joke about modern structures or politics or something, people will get it and they'll get it in the world. Whereas in a low fantasy game, like if you're playing in something like Sword and Sorcery, you you have to sort of throw yourself in a different world where your character isn't you and your character is not going to sort of view the world the same way you do. And so for me, the role play on that is just maybe more exciting. For me what the biggest pro behind low fantasy is that feeling of realism that feeling of actual tension that comes with it because when you play a realistic game there tends to be you know higher stakes just because you know i'm not going to be able to wade through all these guys and just take a billion damage and still be fine you know there are consequences and so to me you know it's i i tend to skew towards realistic games anyway so I prefer the low fantasy over the high fantasy if it's, you know, built primarily around the idea that you are mortal, you are, you know, are flesh and bone, and, you know, if you get stabbed a couple times, you're out. I think that's it. So if you're looking for games where it's tense, you know, I ran a low fantasy game where that picture of mortality was very much so on the table, and combat was never the first option for the players because... <laughs> <laughs> they knew they had, you know, seven hit points or whatever before they were out, and fights were intense. And so they came up with creative solutions. They never bit off more than they can chew. And it, it really just kind of added this gravitas to the to the fight scenes, which just made it for such a better game than just like, oh, look, there's a bunch of orcs. Let's go kill them. It's easy. Yeah, and for, for me, one of the, the big draws is the potential that it has to reset kind of the sensibilities of your play group and kind of what i mean by that is that if you know my biggest amount of time playing was definitely in the 3.5 mm-hmm. days you know, eventually 5e might outweigh that but with that being so long in the tooth and i mean we can just take my current play group as an example like they're called the zoo for all the right reasons you know I, mean, I have someone who's essentially a tengu or like an aracoca Actually, I have two bird people. I have a two bird people, a cat person, you know, and all of that. I think looking at low fantasy is the potential to reset. And like you said, the serious tone, because we're humans fighting for our lives or our mission. And like that is the crux of the game is that those are the things that we need to do and accomplish and setting that narrative, you know, resetting that narrative tone in a lot of ways. And then, you know, potentially being able to take that reset back into high fantasy games and still hold true to that narrative idea of like that gravitas and how important things are and not laughing at how silly the whole group looks. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would also add too um, another pro to the low fantasy is that you avoid oversaturation of magical stuff. You know, it's so if you do throw a magical artifact or item to the players, that's a huge deal. Like, that really, really matters, because you don't just go to, you know, know, Jordan's magic shop and buy a bunch of magical stuff. Like, in that game, it's this real sense of, like, discovery. Like, wow, we got something that, you know, 99% of the world doesn't even know about. That's something really special. Yeah, and I think you both brought up up really interesting things about the survivability and then that scarcity. Mm. 
And I think if we were going to, again, I was kind of maybe saving this for later in the conversation, but yeah, that idea of survival matters. Whereas in a high fantasy game, I mean, you can count your rations and you can measure how many inches of rope you have and that's cool. But the, but surviving even against nature would be something that I think should be a part of most low fantasy mm-hmm. games, right? Even if there's no magic wizard to fight, it could be a famine. It could be, you know, just hunting, you know, even like the, the week's hunt or something could even be considered important enough sort of like to get your food and that idea of scarcity. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I know. I mean, that idea almost made me think of like making or looking at a low fantasy campaign as like this kicking it old school, uh, the Oregon trail. You're yeah, an old yeah. game on the computer, like the importance of such very small things. But it's like we will literally live and die if I can't shoot another buffalo. And, and just that idea of like even that is important, like that is extremely important. And you could involve your entire group in the ability to catch the food that will help you survive to continue your quest and continue surviving. Yeah, And then and then you can throw in things like disease and illness, which are far more you know, terrifying in a game where you don't have access to basic healing spells that could just quickly make it all go away. So suddenly, you know, someone yeah. catching an illness, that's like a huge problem. Yeah. I like that because there's no quick fix, I guess. And that goes back to my idea of if magic can just like, oh, I tore my dress, but I can like magic it up or like, oh, I have like, you know, it's like very Star Trek then for mm. me. High fantasy sort of feels like Star Trek, right? Mm. If we're thinking more than an Andrew's sense of genre, not setting. If you can just be like, I fixed everything, well then, if magic just erases difficulty and erases the problems, yeah, it doesn't have that sort of sense of consequences, mm. I think. that That's a good point. We kind of started hinting towards it, or well, I mean, so I was kind of thinking about going into some hooks, but um, are there any other topics, Calvin, that you wanted to bring up before we kind of get into that? Uh, well, I mean, something kind of that, that Andrew just said that, I would have talked about sort of that difference, right? Every magic item should have its own name and like its own provenance or something, right? There, like there's not going to be like longsword plus two. Yeah. Like it should have a name and it will have a history and you might have to know parts of that history to use it, right? Everything's unique, I guess. And like in early dark, we don't even have like ogres, right? We have every monster that would be sort of classic. An ogre is more like a category of monster and you would make them independently, right? Each, each animal is its own species. You know, like back in, you know, mythological times, we had like, you know, we had centaurs as a thing that Greece would talk about, right? These are people, you know, like human torsos, and, and there was like a, they're like a race of things. But the minotaur was a singular thing. There was no race of minotaurs, mm-hmm. right? It was created by a particular, you know, tragic situation. It was thrown in the middle of a maze, and it was used to protect that, that maze, right? It was one thing. And so, you know, we kind of now just use minotaurs as, as races and things like that in a lot of games, and that's fine. Um, what we tried, I mean, I think in a low fantasy game, your monsters shouldn't be as much like centaurs as they should be like minotaurs, right? Like your monster should be like the troll of yada, yada, yada. And it's like that particular thing. And that's what they call it. You know, like the goblin over here, maybe technically it's not a goblin. Goblins, what they call monstrous little things. And maybe you get there and you're like, oh, according to my manual, it's actually a troll or something, right? But like every magical thing, every artifact, every strange thing should kind of be treated as strange, yeah, right? Once yeah. it becomes just sort of absorbed into the culture, then it's no longer that low fantasy definition. Then it's no longer strange anymore. And I make a really great point. So instead of people being like, oh yeah, there's just a bunch of goblins, it's just they are one singular creature out there they would call the goblin. Yeah, yeah. that would definitely make the setting a lot more unique and also create more of a sense of wonder kind of bring that fantasy back into it because like oh wow what is this thing yeah 
you could use a bestiary or like the you know the monster manual, and you could take out a troll. You could you could have a goblin. You could have a you know any of these random things. But the people in that town might just call it a goblin or an ogre because that's what their people call monsters, mm. right? And you and your players wouldn't have a different way of explaining it. Well, and I really like the idea of going. It's kind of going back to, and I think it was you, Calvin, that had mentioned it, where the idea of magic. There are people that can choose because of the the lack of interaction with it, choose not to believe it. And I think that comes into play with the monsters. You know, and if you look at, you know, in our real world in the United States and all of the cryptozoological creatures that we have, you know, it's almost as like, well, those are real, but again, there's Bigfoot. Yeah. Not a race of Bigfoot people. And well, at least you know, that's what we think that, anyway. Well, <laughs> so we've been talking for an hour and now you yeah. found out that I believe in the, <laughs> when the Bigfoot people come and take us over. Yeah. But yeah, or like you know the Jersey Devil, it's called that because it's only going to live in Jersey, right? You know, and that idea that these creatures exist in these very small kind of biomes, and then people don't interact with it, so they can choose not to believe it. But then you're introducing that they are real and they are special. So I, I guess a question I kind of have to you, and we've hinted at it a little bit: How would you implement magic items and like obtaining them, or just in the in your world, or kind of in the setting? I mean, definitely having them be important names, histories, everything around them, surrounding them. But like, I'm almost thinking, and this, I guess, kind of gets us into story hooks is like, how do you introduce that? Like, what is the lead up to obtaining a magic item or something like that? Well, and I would say, I mean, you can use all of your high fancy stuff, right? You can use the monster manual. You can use, you know, any of these, you know, even like the great stuff that's on Kickstarter now and all of these great um, supplements and stuff to your game. But like if you have like a particular monster from page 315 in the game, call it a goblin or call it an ogre or call it whatever those people call monsters, your players are then going to be even more excited because they can't just look up the page. They don't know which one you're talking about yet. You describe it in the game terms, you describe it, and they have to kind of interact with it. So they're going to have maybe that sense of wonder too. And then with weapons, I mean, you obviously have to write down, here's what it is and give them the stats maybe. But like, you know, in early dark, for example, all of the, the stats kind of come from more names. You're just like tacking on more names. So if they have an item that has a certain name, and a certain ability, they need to learn the other names of it, right? Like maybe this sword is also this other one. You know, you've heard two stories. Oh my gosh, what if that's, what, you know, what if Glamdring and Excalibur are the same sword, right? And once you figure that out, now this, you know, it has like both powers to it or something. Um, so you really try to like uncover names, right? And like when Conan, I mean, in the film, right, you have Arnold fall into that, you know, that crypt and he finds that Atlantean king sword. Like, I mean, shoot, hopefully that was like a broadsword plus four or something like that or plus two. But you know, in, in, the, in the true game, he might just write down Atlantean sword, right? You don't have to write, you know, even as a game master, you can translate that for your players, right? Even if you're playing in like maybe a high fantasy friendly system like D&D, you can say, yeah, you have the Atlantean king sword. Don't write down whatever plus four, just give them the, you know, give them the stats plus four to damage plus four. Man, that's, I mean, that's a super cool idea for magic items that I think transfers across any system learning the history to obtain more power through it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, cause that's a very, you know, and a common thing, even in high fantasy is like, cool. I got this plus plus one plus two. It's really cool. But then I found a plus three. Yeah. So now it's, now <laughs> I don't, now it's in the trash. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But the idea of like learning more about the weapon as you, I mean, as your character is becoming more powerful and in turn the weapon is becoming more powerful, that's, I really, really like that. And that's specific to the game. I realize some games can't do that and that's okay. I mean, if you want to say like, I know how sharp it is when I look at it physically, like, sure. But are you like, 
you know, we, I mean, we have early dark is sort of set in myth. So it's like, you know, the people who hear this myth later didn't know that it was both swords. So now it's more powerful, right? Because now you're telling stories about both swords. You know, we kind of have that. We kind of put it in the subjunctive case or something or the, the pluperfect or something like that. Awesome. So what are some other like story hooks we could toss around for low fantasy games? Um, one that comes to mind pretty quickly is fake, uh, the concept of fake wizards. Oh, yeah. You know? if, if magic's not really prevalent in you know, your low fantasy world, then there's probably still going to be people who claim to have the power of the supernatural. Yeah. And so and then you can just have a lot of fun because you can even, you know, players who might not be familiar with this style of game just have them buy into it hook, line, and sinker and do something with that. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. They're going to be so sad when they figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's like something that Andrew mentioned before, too. I mean, I mentioned, you know, people don't always have to believe in magic, but everyone is going to believe in magic. They might not believe in like the right one for your setting or something, right? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, like everyone will be superstitious. We're still superstitious today, as you mentioned, Neil, right? Like we still, people have those. We're incredibly superstitious today. Yeah, who uh, who here changes out their dice regularly when it's not working for you? <laughs> dice jam. Yeah. And it's like, and, and, yeah, do you believe it's going to happen or not? Well, you still do it, right? So like what does belief mean if you're still doing it? And so yeah, there's every place, and I think in a low fantasy game, maybe that's what it is. People don't know, people cannot be certain what is magic and what mm. isn't, right? Like Merlin was a guy who you'd go in a room with him disagreeing but then when you came out you'd be agreeing with him like is that magic or is he just really really smooth like i don't I mean i don't know or is he just really logical right like what is it that he can always make people agree with him you know that like that that line between magic and non-magic is maybe blurrier in the low fantasy i really really like that idea because i really really want one of the players to be someone that it is magic and they're on the inside. Like you bring them in and let them know that it's not real. And they're essentially just a very competent illusionist with sleight of hand and things like that. But then like everyone believes it. Oh, that'd be so, that'd be so much fun. And then you have to eventually find out that it's all not real. And maybe I'm thinking of now too, even just, you know, kind of like our three different definitions when we first started, right? Mine was more to sort of setting based, and Andrew had that more genre thing. Something like the movie Willow, I guess I would consider low fantasy, even though it does have the buttons and the waistcoats, and that maybe sort of, you know, like idyllic, like what we might say, like medieval or Renaissance style garb. I still would consider that low fantasy, maybe because of that blur, right? And because of the fact that it's just, you know, does Willow, I mean, when he does his disappearing pig trick, like, is he magic? Is he not, right? And he's got a couple of these acorns, but like the magic is more of this, you know, sort of background thing in that film. Willow. Uh, that's all. I, anytime I hear that movie, that's all I can think of. The other one that I thought of, you know, we kind of already brought it up. What if you know, the players were the ones who sought out to figure out which of these like cryptozoological creatures were real? Mm-hmm. You know, and so then there's this giant trek to go find the troll of the mountains, find out if it's real, and if it is real, what do they do? Like. Do they, I mean, do they even choose to attack it or not? And then like the, all of the things surrounding like, okay, we are going to choose it to attack it. What of the myths are true? What is false? You know, we can't just, you know, Andrew, kind of like you had said, like, we can't just blindly rush into this thing. We're probably all just going to die if we do. Yeah. And I like, I mean, it, like the hooks for me, then one of the big things I could have mentioned earlier, maybe for me, low fantasy then doesn't have capitalism, I guess, generally. Like, you don't have shops, like Andrew said. You don't walk into a store and order five of these and three of those, right? And so the idea that social ties are more important than money, 
I guess for me is a really big part. Um, they have markets. People have had markets. People have had markets for thousands and thousands of years. But it's not the whole thing where there's like shops that you walk into and you have the professional person whose job it is to like have the cash register. You don't walk around a store, pick out the five swords, the shield, and everything you want, and then go up to a register and pay for it. And I think people really bring that into their high fantasy games in ways. Um, and it's cool in a low fantasy game to role play how social ties are more important than money, right? If you show up with a bunch of coins from a different country, those people are like, I don't, we don't take those. <laughs> those will not help us, right? And like, so having that idea of like, you know, maybe like, you know, what you mentioned, Neil, like having these quests, like that little quest of like, if you go take care of that goblin, you know, we'll then talk to you or we'll give you the lodging you want, right? Or if you go wrestle those, you know, bring us those goats or you start participating in the village, like we will then give you food because we don't exchange food for money here. That's just not what we do. And I guess for me, that's that sort of otherworldly thing that I might consider more realistic, but less like today, I guess. Yeah, because a lot of times the shops and all that, it's really just a matter of convenience for the players anyway. Because it's like, okay, we just need to get some gear. But if we're playing a game where survival matters, then, you know, getting food is still always going to be a big deal. You know, having lodging rather than risking out being out in the, the wilderness in the nighttime, that's still more important than, you know, the, what a high fantasy player would be focusing on at the time. And I don't think that needs to happen in the structure of the game mechanics, right? Like all the stuff that, I mean, I'm, Andrew may disagree, but I think a lot of the stuff we're saying, you can do that as a GM. You don't need to have a system like Fatal or a system like, you know, some of these other sort of like famous rugged like low fancy games or something that make you count how many ounces of or how many you know how much carbs versus how much protein versus you know you've eaten every day are there really se- i'm sorry are there really settings that are that detailed <laughs> no i mean yeah i mean that's not amazing. that detailed i was being I, that was a caricature <laughs> sorry i would play um, i would play i would play that system that's just the kind of bookkeeping i want yeah but it see, but you know, the system doesn't need to have that kind of granularity for the GM to still count it, right? Like, oh, you want your full rest for the night? You know, maybe your system has a full rest or a half rest. Oh, if you want your mm. full rest, you're going to have to go out there and do some work first. So no, you can't make your other rolls. No, you can't do this. No, you can't memorize your spells, bro, because you're you got to be working. So no, you don't get your spells, but you do get food. You know, and kind of play that, like make the players have to be concerned about those things without necessarily making your system have to have those rules. And then, and then part of it, too, is really role-playing on that end, too. Like, you know, yeah. hey, are we all going to role-play and, and say, hey, we're actually going to be real people who are concerned with real things, or are we just going to, you know? Right. Yeah, and I think, yeah. And I think that, I mean, even now if I'm looking at, you know, like my sort of like notes and what I want to talk about with hooks, the big thing was, yeah, social ties being more important than money, problems that magic can't solve, right, where you can't be like, you know, there's no Google back then, right? You can't just like, and people don't know stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember there's this, it's, it's probably not real, but the story of Paul McCartney, you know, and, and all of his his musical genius couldn't figure out a B seventh chord as a young teenager in England, had to take a bus like an hour to get to another town to 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 find this guy that could show him the appropriate way to play a B seventh chord. Cause, you know, with his musical his limited musical theory knowledge, he couldn't figure it out, right? And so even having that, like having social ties more important than money, having problems that there is no way magic could possibly solve. Um, and then having survival matter, I think, are three just sort of things to worry about that kind of give unlimited hooks. Yeah. So the one I was thinking is the other thing is in a less tame world, nature is terrifying. Like that's another conceit of low fantasy, I think, is like we have to remember how scary nature is. Just animals, if angry, will kill <laughs> us. Like 
You mean, there's a lot of animals that are like four times our size and power and everything. And with the lack of technology and structure of our world, they will just kill us. Like, yeah. I mean, tigers and bears are the first I think of if you implement the idea of there's some, for some reason, they're diseased. Or maybe they ate a plant and now, I mean, honestly, the tiger and bear are just tripping out. And they're, instead of hunting for food, they're just hunting and killing everything in their way. And now the players are tasked with solving that problem for those people. And again, getting that social capital essentially as a resource for them so that they can continue to, can, can continue to live the life that they want. And one of the things we really do, like in Early Dark particularly, is you know that blend. I mean, that's entirely true, right? This idea that, that nature can be dangerous, but then also this idea that you know, for thousands of years, people, you know, we didn't die out because of tigers and bears, though, too, right? And there is a lot of sort of like romanticization of primitive peoples and all their struggles. I mean, you can look at hunter-gatherer societies, you know, they have to hunt once every two weeks, and they have to gather for like an hour a day, like those people weren't starving at all, right? They were, it was a very successful subsistence strategy that kept everyone healthy and, and fed. It just didn't sustain certain kinds of infrastructure and certain population densities, right? It's not that you know every village is on the brink of starvation. As long as they don't have an advancing horde on them, they're probably fine. That's why there's 200 families living here, right? They have farmland. They have this. And trying to really highlight those issues that, for me, low fancy, without having, I mean, I've said it before, but infrastructure, right? If you don't have, like, you might have a perfectly fine village. They, I mean, a tiger. If you wear a mask on the back of your head, no tiger will ever attack you because tigers are, you know, have evolved to attack the back of something and bite its neck. You wear a mask, I mean, in India, right, farmers, they wear a mask on the back of their head. The tiger just gets freaked out trying to get behind you all the time. It's like, this guy keeps looking at me. I can't, get I can't, he keeps looking at me, right? So there's things, you know, there's ways that, that we humans are brilliant enough to get around that. But then something just like traveling down a road for four hours was what was freakishly dangerous because you have brigands, you have, you know, there was no, um, I think someone mentioned, I forget who, right? There was no, um, it was still, it wasn't tame, right? The yeah. space between towns weren't tame. Whereas mm -hmm. now in the modern world, you have like roads, you have everything has been tamed but the wilderness. Whereas in low fantasy, there's wilderness between every single village, right? There's a little bit of wilderness everywhere. And like, yeah, trying to just highlight that, I think, has always been one of our stuff, right? I mean, as an anthropologist then too, to kind of be accurate, like we as humans, you know, we're awesome. Like we have natural weapons. We can run down a deer, right? Humans are fantastic endurance runners. Like if you can find it, you can, you can run down a deer, um, we're great resilient beings, but we, you know, but there are sort of cool issues historically that, you know, we're dangerous that you can highlight, right? Like just, just plain traveling was hard, right? I also know that, that people in Africa have implemented the use of lights that go around and turn on occasionally and it scares lions away because the lions assume that there are people there because there are lights there. Oh, yeah. And it like protects the herd essentially that around the fence lights show up. Genius. Genius, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah, humans, like, and that's the thing. There are so many of those, I think, some of these games, you know, the ones I mentioned before, the low fantasy games, they really try to, by making something so brutal and like, you know, humans pre civilization. Well, we've always had civil, I mean, to call us humans is to say we have societies, right? And like, certain things were hard, certain things weren't, right? And there's like, oh, it was brutal. Everyone was murdering everyone. No, they weren't. We were very, murdering is stupid. Humans figured out very early how to get people to stop murdering people, right? It wasn't just like murder rampant capital of the world. It was that when you traveled, if someone killed you on the road, we didn't have forensics to find out who did it. Like, that's true. But in a village of 400 people, if some guy murdered someone, that guy's going down, you know? Like, it wasn't like it was just lawless everywhere, right? I think we sort of romanticize, you know, the, the Wild West. Like, everyone didn't walk around with guns in the Wild West. Everyone didn't just shoot people in the Wild West. Like, humans are, you know, we organize societies really well. 
and trying to highlight that, you know, for, for me then, you know, our games are always a little bit progressive. They're always, you know, they have some conceits to them of like ways to play and ways to role play different people. But yeah, I mean, we don't want to highlight sort of like the crazy humans on the brink of dying because humans don't make it. We you know, want to highlight that, like what was different, what is weird about these worlds and really, yeah, try to focus on, you know, even just interesting ways, you know, like the things that the problems humans can get into. Awesome. But again, academic conceit, I admit, I fully admit. Uh, oh, no, no. All that stuff you're saying is kind of like mind blowing to me. So it's yeah. amazing. It's, it's super good. Um, so anything, anything from anyone before we kind of close it up? I have something. I have something. Um, so for hooks, no. uh, in the character creation process of Early Dark, right, our big like sort of like low fantasy flagship game, um, you don't come to the z- session zero or session one with your character backstory and stuff. You actually roll up a hook, and then your party sort of decides kind of like mini role plays that particular situation and that hook to figure out who you are. And so you actually start like you're in a village starving from a famine and then three kids go missing, go. And you're like, okay, I'm the dad of one of the kids that's missing. Okay, I'm one of the kids that's missing. I'm not really a kid. I just haven't done my like adult ritual yet, but I'm actually like 17-ish. And it was like, okay, I'm the guy and the hermit who lives outside of town who has some evidence. And you kind of pick those things and then build your characters off of that. So yeah, we have like, I guess 180 or something different low fantasy hooks just in the, the last five pages of the early dark book. Um, oh, if we wow. had a few minutes, I would have said, yeah, let's just roll up some of those, right? <laughs> I was kind of maybe saving some of the, the hook meat. But even here, a group of servants are sent by their master to seek an advantage over his enemies in the hut of a dark hermit. And you just kind of pick who you want to be in that. And in you deciding who your character is, you build out all that drama. Like you build out how big the city is. Who's that? Like where's here? And the hook kind of then emerges from, you know, who you want to be in that situation. I also love that it's kind of a communal hook. Yeah. Because like, you know, when you had first described it, I was like, okay, well, I'll roll you know, with the basic idea. I'll roll, Andrew will roll, Calvin, you will roll, and then we'll kind of figure it out together. But it's like, no, here's this thing. And now how do you all fit into this thing? And that's the kind of the hook that defines yeah. you as a group and you as people. I like that. So the other and most important question I have for you is where can people go to find all of your stuff on the internet? Oh, yeah. Um, if you go to anthropostgames.com, um, you can get the hard copy, gorgeous deluxe, like 400-page yes. early dark books. Um, they're $36.99. We, sold, we, we priced them a little bit too cheap to get them in a lot of retail stores. Um, they're distributed actually through Indie Press Revolution. Um, they're for sale all over the world. You, can probably, you, know, you might be able to pick it up in your local store, but anthropostgames.com. And then you know, all of our digital products you can get at DriveThruRPG. Awesome. Well, Calvin, thank you again for coming on and blowing our minds. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I feel like we could have you on like for another five episodes with like the topics you dropped just in the first few minutes. So I think I'll say it for me. I definitely feel like we're going to have you back on and have you keep blowing our minds. Cool. Well, thank you. I had I had a really good time. Very good to, to be able to talk to you guys a, a little bit longer than than at, than at the con for only five minutes. Thanks again, Calvin, for coming on and discussing the highs and the lows of low fantasy. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated. And who knows, maybe we can read your passive-aggressive comments on the air. And if you head over to Twitter, you can always follow us at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block or head over to Facebook and find us under Dungeon Masters block where you can catch all the episodes we put out and all of the memes and everything else we post. But as we do with every episode, we have a Patreon dragon that we want to shout out. Today's shout out goes to Andy Bell.
perfect. And Andy is a silver dragon who is flying through the forums and tearing up and getting all of those awesome Patreon bonuses. As always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other shows like the GM Showcase, Geek Wars, We're So Bad at Adventuring, and more. Thanks for listening to the Dungeon Masters Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. The only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. This is DM Andrew saying, keep on dungeon crawling. This is DM Neil. Good night and good luck. But before we do that, we have a couple of iTunes reviews that we want to read out loud. Man, I'm losing my train of thought. I'm thinking too much about what we all just talked about. Goodbye.